Hello, and welcome to the Wild Wonder Podcast. I am your host, Kristen Yorka, and do I have a show for you today. This episode is entitled The Yoga of Witchcraft, where we'll be taking a look at what the two practices share and how they diverge, what being a witch really means, Cersei as the original witch, and we'll dive into curses and curse breaking with Nick Dickinson of Hedgecraft Ritual Arts. Nick is headmistress of Circe Academy of Feral Greek Witchcraft through the Cauldron Black in Salem, Massachusetts, and a professional witch and witchcraft educator with over 35 years of experience working with clients and students in both public and private settings. Ordained and initiated in a variety of tantric yoga traditions and a teacher of thousands of yoga teachers and psychics, his classes and workshops are deeply influenced by the intersection of classical yoga theory and modern witchcraft practice. Operating through a multidimensional animus lens with a focus on Greek folklore, Nick's content welcomes all traditions at all levels and can be approached in a purely secular way. So without further ado, on with the show. Hi, Nick, and welcome to the Wild Wonder podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to have you. I first heard about you and your work on Amanda Yates Garcia's podcast, Between the Worlds. And I believe that's when, like, Circe was, the goddess Circe was, like, haunting me. I heard from you about Circe, and then I came upon Madeline Miller's book, um, and it really brought her to the forefront, whereas previously she was just kind of like a side character in the Odyssey, which I think is true for most people. But I would love to hear your story and how you came to the goddess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll try not to give too long of a version because that could be a very long conversation. <laughs> but I guess it's worth um, starting at, as close to the beginning as I can, which is um, I grew up in a Greek household. My grandmother is from Pilos. Um, so that is the um, western um, side of Greece. So um, Circe would have been, uh, uh, her uh, island would have been between, somewhere between the western side of Greece and Italy. So already the war is sort of, you know, in, in my blood and in my history. And to tell you the truth, it's a little bit difficult for me to pinpoint because you know the way, you know, childhood memories work. <laughs> I'm sure I heard the name in the context of the Odyssey, uh, but it wasn't really until probably 11 or 12 years old um, that I came across Circe in a book um, called Wizards and Witches, which is a book you could order online in the 1980s. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Only the Gen X will, will get it. Uh, but this is a series of books that was just fascinating because it had like a bunch of folklore and beautiful pictures in it. Um, and in there was um, a picture of the waterhouse image of Circe in Vidiosa, which is her uh, pouring the green liquid out. And I remember being, um, not even really caring about what the text was about her. It was very brief, you know, uh, mm -hmm. interactions with Odysseus. But the image itself really resonated with me. Um, Circe is, if you don't know the image, it's worth pointing out, um, Circe is standing on the surface of the water, you know, which as a, as a young Greek Orthodox Christian in the household that I was growing up in, that's something that Christ did, right? Walked on the surfaces of the waters and stuff like that. So that felt very um, potent to me to see this um, feminine figure, you know, um, and, and, and somebody who was doing an act that maybe some 
people would consider evil. And, they, and what she was actually doing in the moment is uh, poisoning uh, the bathing water of her cousin Scylla, and Scylla, which is also the root word for bitch. <laughs> so there's so quite a lot to unpack there. Uh, you can see Scylla underneath the water uh, transforming into a sea monster. So in, in Circe's quite um, not necessarily calm about it, but there's a sort of stoic image of her. She's just, she's unwavering. She's like a mountain on the surface of the water. And that image um, ha had a huge impact on me, more than the words I had heard about her. And that mm -hmm. sort of opens a whole dimension of uh, my imagination with her. Um, and so I used to um, even act out. I would take a, my grandmother's crystal bowl and I even got some green food coloring and like acted out. <laughs> would go out and so that there were the, all these little streams and swamp, a swamp land around me. And I would go up to the woods and sort of act out this moment. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't until I really started practicing witchcraft in, in a significant way that um, Circe made sense. You know, at first it was just sort of my imagination and my general interest. And then it made sense that she was a, uh, a part of my path, you know, um, in terms of my actual practice as a young queer witch. And then that, that sort of kept going and, and I, uh, sort of evolved with me over time. Um, and then in a much more explicit way, when I, I started teaching in uh, Salem, Massachusetts, um, Several years ago, I started teaching uh, witchcraft publicly and giving uh, leading public ritual and stuff like that. That I led a invocation to Circe inside of the witch house, which, if you know anything about Salem, that's a, a, a big destination for modern witches. Um, uh, during a, a festival, which we call the Salem Witchcraft and Folklore Festival, um, and that invocation was experimental. You know, I wasn't sure how it would go. It was something very private and personal um, that I, I was trying to share for sure, but I didn't know how it would land. Right. Um, and there were three different groups of people. I want to say there's about a hundred people that came through. Um, and a bunch of those people um, came up to me afterwards and were like, I really felt something. This was one of the most powerful things I've ever felt. Tell me more about CRC. How can I practice with CRC? And every time I tried to condense the information, it felt inadequate. And that's when I started um, really teaching, you know, what has now morphed into uh, CRC Academy, which is a full, basically a, um, a complete guide to witchcraft practice um, that centers Circe as, as the main deity and force. Wow. So what's the timeline there from the time you first encountered this picture that had such an impact on you and your, when you started teaching witchcraft full time? Um, 35 years. Wow. wow. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, right? I'm, yeah. I would, I was, I just turned 50. So, okay. so uh, that would have been um, several years ago. So yeah, about that. <laughs> Amazing. And in between, from what I've read about you is that you also did training in traditional yoga practices. Mm. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yoga was always a part of it. So that, that's, mm. um, I don't know that that's necessarily unique to me, but especially I think um, witches and, and, and magical people that grew up in the 80s, there was a lot of overlap. Uh, my mom and my aunts were already practicing yoga when I was born. Mm -hmm. so there were books in the house about yoga. Um, and, I, and there wasn't really a, a line between my witchcraft practice and my yoga. You know, I, I, would, I was trying to access power to either shift my consciousness or to shape shift reality. 
Um, and both yoga and witchcraft are designed to do that. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense to practice them together. Right. I've heard from a lot of practitioners that yoga was their first like opening into other magical arts. Um, but it seems like for you, it kind of worked in tandem. You were both exploring witchcraft and yoga around the same time. Would that be true? That is absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, there was, like I said, there was all the things, all the things that sort of still resonate for me, which are, you know, traditional um, Greek folk magic, mm -hmm. um, yoga, um, and modern witchcraft, but were already in my house when I was born. So it was something that just, I had very easy access to. And, and it wasn't without, like, sometimes I had to hide my witchcraft practice from my Greek Orthodox grandmother, but, like, um, and, and my mom didn't necessarily uh, want to be, uh, practice sort of d darker magic that I was interested in as, as, as a young, angry child. Um, um, yeah, you know, uh, it, some of it is very much my own, but mm -hmm. it, it certainly was there and, and available to me in a very easy way. Um, but I, I understand that, like, it makes sense for yogis to eventually find witchcraft and for what i'm seeing in a lot of my friends and colleagues for witches to eventually find yoga you know i think there's a there's a reason why that content finds its way to itself you know it's very similar i think yeah i think the similarities for me are that they both practices bring you back into the body are there other similarities that you see between the two practices oh of course yeah i mean i think that the big one is that there's a fundamental belief, I think, in modern witchcraft practice across most traditions mm -hmm. that your willpower or some some energy that is called different things by different traditions, which mm -hmm. fire, the force, magic, whatever you want to call that energy, can bend reality to your will. Mm -hmm. And and as a, somebody who is very well versed in Mahayana Tantric uh, Buddhism, uh, if you don't know, Tantric Buddhism is yoga. You know, the word yoga is probably used more in Buddhism to describe things than it is in, in the classical texts of Hinduism in a lot of ways. So um, there are so many yogas. You know, there are the 11 yogas. There are the six yogas. There's the, so many sadhanas and pujas and rituals that have the word yoga in them and have yogic implications. And all of those practices are designed to change reality. You know, if we're looking just at classical yoga, the purpose of it was to become godlike. To, to attain miracle powers, to be able to levitate, to, to affect the weather, to heal others, to curse others even, mm. you know? So I think it's, it's in my humble opinion of where, you know, I think that um, there's a pretty good argument to be made that at the fundamental level, a lot of these traditions are talking about the same thing, which is the, mm. the, the spiritual potential that's sort of dormant inside human beings mm. that requires some work from our side to activate it. Yes, and the word that keeps coming to me is also the sense of sovereignty in both practices, the ability mm. to govern oneself and be so, in power. Yeah, very, very true, I agree. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously in witchcraft, that's the case. Maybe mm -hmm. it's less obvious because we have, you know, different preconceptions, of it, especially through the modern yogic lens. But if mm -hmm. we really look to Patanjali, for example, um, that's really clear, right? He's, you know, he's really clearly explicitly like, I'm, I'm teaching you this so you can, be, you can become the most powerful version of yourself, you know, mm -hmm. so many deity. How has yoga and witchcraft helped you feel more empowered in your life? What does that look like for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it, there's such a tremendous overlap that it's almost hard for me to untangle it because it's a little bit chicken and the egg thing. Like, 
it is it did I bring imprints with me from my previous lives as you know my mother and others kind of uh, thought when I was a child um it, is it just that all that stuff was in the space and that I was influenced by it on you know some subliminal level um but before I really understood uh, even the meaning of the word yoga and and that was relatively recently in the scheme of things you know um I was doing yogic things with witchcraft you know, and I think a lot of witches intuitively do this. Um, and, and sure, I may have been influenced by like, you know, the ceremonial magic content that was available. And then, um, and a lot of that was, um, you know, you channel the deity or you draw down the deity into your body and you channel that energy to do workings and, and channel is maybe not the best word, but that's, the, that's what comes to mind. Okay. And I naturally did that with Circe. Um, it, it was almost as if, my personality and Circe's personality bled into each other. You know, I was a very imaginative child. I think when adults start calling children imaginative, that's also a red flag for the child is maybe spiritual, right? They're, they're yeah. perceiving, um, you know, I had a lot of quote unquote imaginary friends. And I think those imaginary friends eventually become a spirit pantheon or guardians or deities, you know? Um, so I think, I think the the big thing that yoga can do for uh, witchcraft is it can empower the individual to become the deity rather than like calling for a force that is external, that is distant, that is often some celestial realm that we're unworthy of. Mm -hmm. I think that yoga and certain, certainly Mahayana tantric Buddhism, but not not exclusively that type of yoga empowers the individual to recognize that they are a part of that thing that they're calling divinity, that it's mm -hmm. inside of them. Yes. And I think, I think well-informed witchcraft does the same thing. You know, I think that um, modern day yogis, um, especially, and I'm talking about, you know, yoga and for lack of a better term, the Western world. Mm -hmm. um, I think they can get us, they can, take their yoga to a next level by getting that info from witchcraft that like, sure, they can take a yoga class and a meditation class and, and different varieties of yoga and meditation and feel empowered, but, but they can, they can take those feelings of empowerment from a yoga class and then take uh, the content from modern witchcraft and shape their reality through the force of their will, through ritual actions, through incantations, through lighting candles, through having spirit interactions. Right, That's, it's a way of embodying that element or that idea into your yeah. body. It makes me think of like when we hold certain yoga postures that make us feel expansive and simple version would be just like opening up, putting our heart forward and being able to walk into the, into the world heart first. It's kind of, we do it in a similar way, but you're talking about taking it to the next level. If we did some of these more ritualistic elements to truly embody the deity. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's like, um, I feel like it sort of circles back on itself. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, um, yoga, you know, if we take the Patanjali um, a take on it, which is certainly not the only take on it, but, you know, Patanjali said yoga is the settling of the mind into stillness. But that the purpose of that stillness is to realize you are that thing, that mm -hmm. Whatever it is, you know, that you're the living wellspring of the titanic force of your ancestors, which is maybe more witchy, mm -hmm. um, or you are that divine spark, that same thing, you know, that the oneness with the 
creation that we, we see around us. And, and the realization that that dualistic thinking of like, I'm here and the divine energy is somewhere else. Right. That's where the power is. It's like you can actually wield it because you are that thing. Mm. And what, what do you think, where does desire play a role in it? Because we talked about the will, but where does the initial impetus for wanting to attain some of these attributes come from, in your opinion? Yeah, it's quite fascinating, you know, because um, I, I, it's no secret that I have an initiation in Mahayana Tantric Buddhism, and mm. um, the, 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 the practice that I do is a, red, a version of a red Tara practice, basically. Mm. It makes the most sense to say that for the uh, people who are not immersed in that world. Um, and that in red Tara aspects usually involve desire, you know, the things that we desire, pursuing the things that we desire. Um, and more importantly, um, using the force of our desire to accomplish spiritual goals. Mm. And I think that the same thing can be said in witchcraft. You know, it has to start with, well, what do you want to actually have happen? And that, that, want that need um, becomes fuel for all kinds of ritual action incantation visualization you know you have to want it first and i think maybe that's where um witchcraft has a clearer message for modern day yogis you know i think that um if you i think if you go to the average yoga class and this is not a criticism of anyone but if you go to the average yoga class in, in the states especially you're probably not going to get a yoga teacher that's like okay Deep, uh, deep in your deepest desires, what do you want, you know, to have happen and, and, you know, channel that into your, your true will and will manifest. They're probably not doing all that. They might be. Who knows? I, I think there's <laughs> some of that happening now. Um, but if you go to a witchcraft ritual, you're probably going to directly be spoken to about that, that mm. you need to know what you want first. And, um, you know, I give credit to um, people like Louise Hebner, who was the official witch of L.A. back in the day when I was growing up and uh, had her books um, and others, Starhawk, mm. uh, uh, Scott Cunningham, um, that that early writing for me that was like, oh, I can just just decide what I want to have happen and sit down with some, some candles and some herbs and whatever else in just my own mind mm-hmm. and make that thing happen. And that's witchcraft. And, and it might not be clear, but when, when the yogis are engaged in their sadhana, whether it's sun salutations or chanting some long ancient Sanskrit mantra, um, they're doing the same thing. You know, they're like, I want to change reality. I think even if you're just taking a, a sort of fitness yoga class, like I used to teach when I was teaching at the mainstream studios here, um, people at least have the understanding they want to change their body. They want their body to be stronger, more grounded. They want to lose weight, whatever it is. That's still wanting to change physical reality, which is the core um, of witchcraft practice as well. Yeah, that's so important to state because I think sometimes we get stuck on the spiritual versus the vain aspects mm. of yoga or any magical practice. Like, do I want this for a greater metaphysical good or do I want this just because I want to look good in a miniskirt? Um, maybe both are valid because the desire, if your desire is just to lose weight and that's why you're going to a yoga class, that then leads into kind of a, a shedding or like a tearing away. So you get into the deeper desires. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does make sense. Yeah. I'm thinking along the same lines that like, I think... You know, I definitely wielded witchcraft power as a teenager and a young adult, 
just to get the things that I want. Right. And I often did. I often was very successful. I mean, if the, the, I, you don't keep doing something if it doesn't work, right? <laughs> I got results, and and my friends saw me getting results, and they were, you know, started paying me money to get them results as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I often, I think, what at least for me, and maybe I should just speak from my own experience here. Um, what happened for me was I was like, oh wow, I want to know more about every type of spiritual power. I want to know all the divine powers, and that changes also what I want from the world. Mm-hmm. Do I just want to be beautiful and have a boyfriend and have wealth? Like I, I use magic to get all those things at, at different points of my life, but there was still a nagging, like I want more of the understanding and ability to wield spiritual power. Yeah. You know, and I think eventually both yogis and witches get there, <laughs> you know, like they, that that's the path. Well, and how important, like if we're talking about just being able to state a desire, kind of a sticky subject for people, for most people, especially Mm. if they come from a marginalized community, to be even able to name their desire. For sure. To get there is so challenging. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm I'm available to the public um, twice a week and going into October more than twice a week in Salem at the Cauldron Black. Mm -hmm. And so I get all types of people. You know, I get get quite a few, actually, um, people, a surprising number this season of people who have never had a tarot card reading. They've never sat down with a witch before and I'm their first. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, and it's often it's it's a very interesting experience for me and often for them um because you know um people will come into me for a reading but what they really want is a spell what they really want is a ritual working what they're really looking for from the reading is how do i get this thing that i want mm. you know how do i attract the right partner how do i stop um this person from harming me mm. how do i get this wealth to come through um, and the reading often points to, especially from someone like me, well, here are the ritual actions you need to take. And that's often a very new idea for folks, even if they consider themselves spiritual. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's often a, a new idea that they can, you know, create an incantation and a visualization that they can use every single day to make the thing happen that they want. They're usually, you know... Um, the impression is, oh, if it's in the cards, I'll get it. And what I usually say to them is, there's nothing fixed here. You know, the, if you do this, you'll get this. If you don't do this, this will. This is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. That's um, again a great service that, uh, that that witchcraft does for people primarily, rather than yoga. Yeah, what an empowering thing just to be able to do one little thing a day. Do you think that's why when we're in times of stress? And when we're going through something like a global pandemic, when we're, you know, we have the aggressor's foot on our neck that we turn to these magical practices. Oh, for sure. I mean, witchcraft has historically been um, the the practice of the oppressed. You know, uh, we don't have to look far for the historical evidence that, you know, witchcraft was used by marginalized people, often by people who were on the um, boundaries of their uh, of their particular societies or, or tribal units, um, and I, and the reason for that can be manifold. I think that sometimes 
people are born with just a natural inclination and I feel like I'm in that group mm -hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons, maybe for being, you know, for non-binary non and queer and identifying, you know, I haven't said it on this podcast, but I've said it elsewhere. Uh, people mistake me for um, a woman well into my college years, even though I had facial hair sometimes, people were still like, I would turn around and be like, oh, I thought you were a girl, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, I, I still got that like in clubs in Boston at like 19. <laughs> so, um, there's something about those folks like me that are already liminal, that are already on the fringes, that have a natural inclination to magical work. But of course, if you're put on the fringes because of uh, you know oppressive um, um, regimes or, or, or cultures, then naturally you're going to seek spiritual help. I mean, that maybe that's not always the case, but I think it's I think it's natural to be like, oh, well, I'm going to use all the resources I have, including my spiritual resources, to fight back against this. Right. And do you see the word witch itself, like someone calling themselves a witch, to be powerful? Because I, I feel like I've heard both. Some people are very, you know, they're proud to call themselves a witch, and there's other people that kind of shy away from the term. What is your view on that? I've always loved the term witch. And it... Mm -hmm. And I knew I was a witch. Um, and again, this is like that, the difficulty in navigating my very early childhood memories. I don't know when I was like, I'm a witch, but it's so far in my memory that I don't have a memory of not being a witch. I don't have a memory of deciding I was a witch. I just knew that um, the term witch, the term queer, the term fag, they all applied to me, <laughs> even when I didn't know what those words meant. And I was so feminine that I got called, you know, the F word and queer and all the awful things you can imagine before I knew what those words meant. Mm. You know, so, um, and, and I think, you know, obviously I grew up in New England and Salem is right nearby. And a lot of our, my early education included the witch trials and things like that. So I knew on an instinctive level, even if it wasn't quite lucid right away, that mm -hmm. I would definitely be somebody that was ex uh, executed for witchcraft if I lived in those societies. No, no, no doubt in my mind. <laughs> like so I'm many like, of us. <laughs> I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have to have done anything beyond just existing to have been um, suspected and probably killed because of um, right. witchcraft. So me using the term witch to describe myself feels right. It feels authentic. I do align myself to the victims of those trials mm -hmm. because I know I'd probably be on the same yeah. on the same um, funeral pyre with them. Um, but I do think it's important to stress that um, although I, I'm not policing anybody and mm -hmm. saying I can't use the word witch, that witchcraft is is a thing. You know, I think it's become a very broad umbrella because of social media aesthetics and stuff like that. And that's fine. But I think that if I think it's a little maybe disingenuous or not quite as informed mm. to call yourself a witch if you're not doing certain things. I mean, firstly, that you're not trying to bend physical reality to your world. And that, that is shape shifting. Mm. That is the, you know, coming back to Circe, that's the first witchy thing in all ancient Greek culture that we ever see. Circe turns Odysseus's men into pigs. It's a literal shape shifting. Right. So that that doesn't necessarily apply to turning your enemies into animals in a literal way or yourself. <laughs> but but the ability or, or the willpower 
to exert your will on a physical reality and bend the circumstances of this world to your will. I think that's the core witchcraft um, commonality. Um, then in addition to that, I would say, you know, working with the spirits, working with the dead, with the ancestors, divination, um, necromancy, all, all would be included. And then cursing and curse breaking. You know, Cersei did both. <laughs> she she cursed Scylla or Scylla, mm -hmm. um, but she also um, did curse breaking when Medea and Jason came to her. And I think in modern Greek culture, that's still the case. It's so fascinating to think about how ancient this content is, and maybe it's worth saying it on the recording, mm -hmm. that when Homer wrote about Circe, he was writing about a mythical past. So when my grandmother took me to Pylos, um, uh, her home in her home ancestral village in the mountains, we went to the ruins of um, a castle that would have been um, uh, that played a role and was mentioned in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Mm. So it was already ancient ruins when Homer was alive. Like which it's just in, in incredible spans of time to think about, and these ideas about witchcraft, cursing, and curse breaking still exist in modern Greek Orthodox culture. Because uh, as you know, I think you know, but maybe your listeners don't know, my grandmother gave me transmission of the modern folk practice to remove the evil eye. Mm -hmm. And the belief in the modern culture, even in the diaspora, is that the people that can remove the evil eye usually have an inclination to give the evil eye. So it's actually, it, it's usually considered good form or, or essential to, to give the people um, who tend to get the evil eye a lot or to give the evil eye a lot, to give them the technique to banish the evil eye because they can focus on that aspect of it. But the reality is it's a two-edged sword. The person who can give the evil eye is also kind of feared in the community. I'm sorry, who can remove the evil eye is also feared in the community because they can give the evil eye, which is exactly what Circe is. So we see this really long narrative completely hidden in modern culture. There's no lucid acknowledgement of this, at least not, unless you go into like really some folkloric studies. Um, but it's still the case. So those three essential points, I think, if you're, if you're, if you're shape-shifting, if you did divination, necromancy, any of that stuff, so many of us do, um, and cursing or curse-breaking, I think that makes you a witch. I think that is a, that's a, an accurate description. Um, and I, it's not to negate people who are not using that term, but that's how I use the term. And I think that's, I think that's the, the fairest way to use it because it is, it, it's not just like, oh, everything's witchcraft, which kind of waters it down to a point that I think doesn't make it valuable anymore. So would a person that is a witch do all of these things or can a witch focus on one of these aspects? Or is it, is, well, that, is it all or nothing? Yeah, I think it's just even being drawn to one. You know, because let's be honest, which is a word that is, and I should give credit to, it's not the first time I thought about this idea, but I should give, give credit to the book Apocalyptic Witchcraft by Peter Gray. Um, you know, which is a word that was on the end of a pointed finger. It was usually an accusation, right? She's a witch, burn her, right? Like, so I think it's important to acknowledge that the people who that would make that accusation against us today, like people on the extreme right, for example, uh, Christofascists and things like that, mm -hmm. um, they don't care if you're a yoga teacher or a satanic Luciferian feminist witch. 
Right. You're all witches. We're all right, witches. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, like I think even if you're a even if you're a right wing yoga teacher, there are people that are right more right of you that think all yoga is satanic and all yoga is witchy. So I think we're all gonna get that accusation if we're engaged in any kind of non normative spiritual practice. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I've been reading. In, I don't know if you know of the book "In Defense of Witches" by Mona Cholet. I don't. Tell me about it. it. It's a great one. I'm slowly working my way through, but in the beginning introduction, she talks about how every witch remembers their first witch. Mm. And I was curious, maybe maybe it's all for you blended together in your childhood, but do you remember when you first, other than Cersei, mm. when you saw a witch and you're like, yeah, I see myself in them? I definitely do. I definitely do. Um, I actually haven't talked about this in a podcast. I've written about it in places. Um, but my grandmother took me to Greece when I was 11, turning 12, on sort of a spiritual pilgrimage. She took me a bunch of holy sites. Mm -hmm. And one of the places we visited was her um, ancestral village in the mountains outside Pilos. And her stepsister, so her older sister, um, lived in her ancestral home and I got to meet my great grandfather. He was still alive then. Um, and while we were visiting and the visit itself, I, I won't go into it because I don't want to take too much of your time. But while we were visiting, um, a young boy was brought to my aunt because she could remove the evil eye. She was known in the village as somebody who could remove the evil eye. And I got to witness this ceremony, um, that I had never seen before in the States because the way to, the way, at least in my family, the way people were removing the evil eye or in my community, um, and I think this probably happens in the diaspora everywhere was very, not just watered down, but it was, um, it looked very simple because I think they were trying to not look like witches in America, right? Like they, they didn't want to get that accusation on them. But in the villages of Greece, it was a different ritual. You know, they lit, lit frankincense and candles and there was billowing white smoke and she was praying over him and, and hissing and spitting and yawning. And I was like, I, I think my jaw was open and I was just like, what happening? And my, my grandmother kind of, I remember trying to, sort of tried to shelter me from it. She was like, oh, let's go over here. And I was like, no, I want to watch this, even as a young kid. And, and, and then people, like there was a large group there. I want to say there was like a dozen people that were just watching. And that to me was the fascinating part that it was like a, it was a community service. You know, the curse breaking was being shared. Everyone was benefiting from the prayers, not just the little boy that had the evil eye. And I, I, I don't know that I consciously thought it in the moment but I knew you know I wanted to be that mm -hmm. that I wanted to wield spiritual power and part of me was just like that's me you know that's what I am in in my heart of hearts oh that just gave me goosebumps what a what an experience to be able to witness and to yeah. sit through because we don't have many opportunities like that these days um even our more you know accepted religions have been watered down so Mm -hmm. I think that's beautiful. Um, and you also do, because I've been, I've participated in your drawing down the moon, but you also do evil eye remo removal for the community um, online. So that's your modern, and you, I'm assuming you do it in person as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, in fact, people can come to the Cauldron Black for in person. We have it as a product there. I've gotten really great results. But yeah, that, you know, that is my, um, my community offering. You know, that is me living up to Circe as, as curse breaker. 
And what, just to clarify, what, how do you define someone that's affected by the evil eye? Evil eye is another one of those very big umbrellas. Um, and it, it's worth pointing out that it's the, the lore is so ancient and so pervasive that we have no idea where it actually comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, there are evil eye traditions that are as far you know east as India that are ancient and we don't know their sources. There are Judaic evil eye traditions. There are Islamic and Christian uh, evil eye traditions. We can we can certainly say that Circe um, removing the miasma from Medea and Jason sounds exactly like removing evil eye. Um, so it's incredibly broad, and it generally means that. A bad eye is on you. Does that always mean a human eye? No. Sometimes it can even be that your own attention on yourself mm-hmm. has brought on an energetic um, miasma. You know, uh, but it's usually some kind of physical affliction that is it's physically felt. Um, it sometimes is um, a feeling of what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, a shift in your mood towards melancholy. Okay. Sometimes it can be a headache or a stomach ache or nausea um, or just feeling off energetically, like cloudy, unable to focus. And sometimes it can be as explicit as like acute illness. You know, my, I, I had um, Kawasaki syndrome, which is a, um, they still don't fully understand what that is. When I was eight years old, I was very, very sick and I almost died. Um, and my grandmother saw that as a spiritual ailment. She saw that as a, an evil eye affliction. And one of the reasons she brought me to Greece was to visit the the tomb of Saint uh, Nectar, Nectarios, uh, because she had done um, some folk magic working to heal me from that illness. To you know, she she believed that uh, Saint Nectar had um, removed this evil eye, this miasma, this illness from me, um, and the 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 fact that I had survived the illness, which looked like to her to be like a spiritual attack, also um, was meant that I could um, be a good curse breaker, that I would be somebody who would be naturally gifted at removing the evil eye, which is why she, um, in that same year, gave me the transmission of the practice. That's beautiful. And then the flip side of that, do you also then practice giving the evil eye? Not exactly giving the evil eye. I don't. Um, uh, It doesn't feel right to me. (laughs) Um, There are people that do do that. and. I was going to say, don't hear this as a criticism, but maybe you should. <laughs> um, I had friends, you know, growing up in the Greek community that, um, um, and when I say friends, it was like mean girl friendships. Um, <laughs> Friend of me. You know, uh, there are people in, in the Greek community that will uh, consciously um, compliment someone. Mm-hmm. Like they'll give too many compliments, but in their head, they're thinking bad thoughts while they're complimenting because that's one way the evil eye gets transmitted. It's it's usually an unconscious thing that we're jealous of somebody. Mm-hmm. Notice how the jealousy of Circe and Scylla still gets caught up in all of this, right? We're mm-hmm. jealous of somebody, but we feel um, culturally obligated to compliment them. And because we're lying, evil can get through on the lie. Oh. So people will, co- there are unfortunately witches that, that, that boast about this on the social medias that mm-hmm. they will, um, consciously compliment someone while harboring hateful feelings in their mind to try to give people the evil eye. I don't suggest doing that because, <laughs> not just because it's not very nice, mm. but also because it sets you up for a reversal. Mm. Because what I do is a reversal. It doesn't just make the evil eye go into the ethers and disappear. Energy has to go somewhere. 
So when I do, when I remove the evil eye symbol, it's very explicit in the, in the Greek prayers. And I have one of many that are out there that you know, there are lineages of. And almost all of them include the words, may this energy go back to the eyeballs of the sender. And often you visualize arrows and daggers going back into the person's eyeballs. So if you're consciously giving the evil eye, you're setting yourself up to maybe have that reversed on you. So while I don't do that type of work, <laughs> what I do do is very conscious and intentional bindings and hexings and potentially cursings. But I have to be um, uh, okay with it in my heart. You know, I have tantric and bodhisattva vows, which are, are, are Mahayana refuge vows on some level. So they require me to um, align all my activities, even my ordinary mundane activities, to cause the most benefits mm. to living beings as possible. Okay. But sometimes the most benefit to the most, uh, to, to the most uh, sorry, bringing the most benefit to the most living beings as possible means binding some living beings as well. It means pressing right. some institutions right, right, I, that need to be uh, bound and, and, and eliminated. Right. On an individual level, what are some things that people come to you for when they're feeling like they have the evil eye upon them? Very often what I'm describing, um, a removal mm -hmm. and, and a reversal. You know, I get I get um, a lot of clients from within the witchcraft industry. Of course, I can't name any names, but you all know who you are, and I love you. Um, that are my patrons and that regularly commission my work. And unfortunately, um, the sad reality is, I'm sure I'm sure the general public has a sense of this if they if they've noticed any <laughs> recent social media discourse on, on on witchcraft. A lot of witches are are cursing each other, you know, and often throwing. Um, Curses around haphazardly if they're younger and newer and, and attention seeking. So what I get a lot of is like, can you reinforce my warding? Can you mm. take care of this curse that I think is coming through? And usually people will commission my work because um, they, they either don't have the time and energy to do it themselves or they feel too close to it. You know, it's like um, sometimes for magic to re be really effective, you have to be kind of a, a little detached from the circumstances, which is why. And I think there's something in the mechanism of that that just works. You know, I think that going to a third party, just like, you know, because Medea, let's talk about Medea and Jason, you know, yeah. Medea and Jason are under this curse. But if you read what Ovid says about Medea, mm -hmm. she's incredibly powerful. She's godlike. She can shatter mountains. So why couldn't she lift the miasma? Why did she have to go to Circe? I think it has to be that third person. There's an act of empathy and compassion in that. Um, that is necessary for the thing to work. Do you also think that if you're too close to it, there's too much energetic involvement that conflicts yeah. with your ultimate goal? Yeah, especially because, you know, let's say theoretically, I don't know, um, somebody has put a curse on, on you. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you have a sense that it's happening. Maybe you've done your own divination and it's saying it's happening. Um, you're going to have very strong emotional reaction to that. And you're strong emotional reaction to that is a drishti, right? Uh, in, mm -hmm. in the Sanskrit word drishti I'm using is um, an energy bridge of your awareness. So you're a little bit like giving energy to the thing right. that you want to get rid of. Whereas if you tell me you have a curse on you, I could be like, oh, let me get rid of that. <laughs> right. My emotional reaction is not as quite as strong as yours, right? right? And also it's worth pointing out that like, you know, if I've been doing something for 35 years or more, um, 
repetition is mastery. You know, like I, I feel that even at, at 50 years of age, I'm still growing in my power. Mm-hmm. There's no end to it. So I think, you know, if you, if you like, I don't know, if you go to somebody who is a master baker, they're going to make you probably a better loaf of bread than you can at home, right? Like yeah. it's something like that. <laughs> Absolutely. And if there's a person that's being, they've realized they've awoken to their, their witchiness or they're being called to witchcraft, what do you recommend they do? Is there a first step? I would, I would read, obviously, you know, go to the books that you're drawn to, but I, w- I would also find community, you know, find a mentor. I'm certainly not the only one, yeah. um, but start with, you know, just booking some private time. There's so many witchcraft educators out there that will do one-on-one time with you, that will book a reading, give you some guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are also like great, great workshops. In fact, uh, I'll give a little a promotion to Salem. Uh, witchcraft and folklore festival. Um, all the classes from that festival are online for purchase and they're very affordable. I think it's like mm-hmm. $30 a class. And, you know, it's worth pointing out that like thousands of hours of research go into some of these classes. We have, you know, people with PhDs in folklore that are presenting. So, you know, take some classes, be willing to, you know, check some stuff out and, and participate in ritual, you know, come to rituals and not just mine, other people's rituals, you know, um, I think the variety is the power, you know, I'm, I, I don't, I, I think that you can, at, at this day and age, you know, it's like a golden age of witchcraft. When I was growing up and reading um, Louise Hebner, she was like something separate. She was like mm-hmm. God that I couldn't have a relationship with. And now you can just like go online and find your mentors that are, you know, like <laughs> educators that have been around for 30, 40 years are like, yeah. oh, come to my live on Instagram. You know, like I would have like cut off my left arm to teach you know, in the 70s and 80s. So yeah, find people that you that you vibe with and, and, and learn from them. Definitely. Are there any warning signs that people should look out for as far as like inauthentic? Very good point. Yes. Look for people that are supported by community. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you, if some, if some account with zero followers is offering to ascend you to 5D, um, they're probably not going to be able to do that. If someone is saying, you know, give me $3,000 to remove this curse on you, that's a huge red flag. Run. (laughs) Um, Nothing costs that much. My, like, Look at my rates. I'm giving 35 um, years of experience for like, you know, you can come see me for 40 bucks at the Cauldron Block, right? So um, make sure like, a, and I, this is one of the good sides of social media. I'm often criticizing social media, but if on Instagram, you know, the person's being followed by authors and leaders that you trust, chances are that's somebody that can be trusted and who's vetted and ask. You know, if you see somebody with a verified blue check mark um, that is following uh, an educator that you are interested in, ask that person, hey, you know this person, they're offering classes. But, um, you know, if they're, one way to, and it, this is not just to promote Salem Witchcraft and Folklore Festival, but there are other great festivals out there. If somebody's presenting in community, chances are that community is going to hold them accountable. Right. If they present something wacky and start telling people to give them $5,000 to lift curses off of them, the, the community is going to step forward and be like, dude, you know, just stop. <laughs> right? Yeah, there seems to be a vetting process there. You don't just, like, join a festival. There's, there's oh, other people. Oh, for sure. That, yeah, most, yeah. most of them are very credible. There are some out there that are a little iffy, and I don't want to start a whole drama, but mm-hmm. um, most of them are very credible. I think you can figure that out by just seeing who's following who. And, you know, are, and I think maybe an important factor is, does the content that's being presented by these folks include... 
um, academic research. Mm, yeah. you know, um, if they're just it, one big red flag for me, and this is coming more from the 1980s than from what's happening now, mm -hmm. is that if someone is just offering only channeled material, they're talking mm -hmm. to somebody in their head that gives them all their information, that's a huge red flag. I would stay away from that content. If somebody is like, yeah, I get some information from spirits, but I verify it by looking at the academic research from the, the tradition of the cultures that I work in. Um, I get it verified by, like, um, my cert, uh, I'll give you an example. My, before I presented any Cersei uh, Academy material, mm -hmm. I had four readings from leaders in the community, people with, you know, very high credentials and you know, authors, witchcraft authors and folkloric authors, um, and I didn't tell them about the specific thing that I was doing to mm. see if I could verify that something was actually happening. So yeah. that is an essential step that there's, a, there's some third party verification of, of, um, of that person. That's so important because there's so many folks out there that only give channeled messages and then there's no way to refute that. You can't question what they're saying because it's just being channeled. And I, and I saw that being really abused in the 1980s. And mm -hmm. let me say this, I don't know that I've said this on, on the on recording, actually. Um, I was channeling when I was a teenager, mm -hmm. you know, and, and this is something that I don't recommend doing. Do not open yourself up to channel if you're a 15 year old queer person <laughs> living on the borders of New Hampshire. That was a mistake. Um, um, but I was channeling for the public and people would pay me. You know, uh, people could come in and either book, uh, I, this was my high school job if I didn't say that. I was reading cards and, and channeling spirits wow. and even doing crystal healings um, at a local New Age and witchcraft shop. Um, but it, it did weird things to me mentally and psychically to have, you know, I would have adults, I would channel for a group um, in the evenings at the shop, and I would have adults in the audience weeping. And as a, like a six-year-old kid, it did weird stuff to my mind. Yeah. Um, and also, like, you know, I was lucky. You know, I think uh, a, the spirit that came through for me um, was benevolent. But we also got, you know, non-benevolent spirits that will take that opportunity and, and do some really weird stuff to folks. And I think I was already grounded in traditions, you know, even folklore and uh, modern witchcraft tradition that gave me some protection going in. But you're right. Like if there's if there's no way to verify, if there's no um, existing tradition or community that can police the person's behavior, I would say stay away from that person because there's so many options that are in, in those communities already that are that are that are safe and, and that I would endorse. Absolutely. I just love talking to you, but unfortunately, we have to go soon. I would love for our listeners to learn where they could find you um, and how they can maybe join one of your rituals, or maybe they want to have an evil eye removed. Can you please let them know? Of course, yeah. I mean, I think the easiest way to find out everything that I'm doing is to go to my Instagram, which is Urban Wizard. Um, I have a link tree in my bio. It has all my educational offerings. Uh, if you scroll down, it'll have um, Hedgecraft Ritual Arts Patreon, and that's where I host rituals. Um, we have at least two rituals a month, a dark or new moon ritual and a full moon ritual, as you mentioned, drawing down the moon. But I also include solar rituals. Um, this Wednesday, um, I'm hosting live. I don't know if this if you're probably here, this is a recording, but it'll be available as a recording, mm -hmm. which is going to be an intro to um, Circe Academy year two. So if anything, you found anything interesting about Circe Academy, um, 
or, or Circe in general, this is the intro class where I'm going to cover in depth what, what we've been doing with Circe and what we will be doing with Circe. And I can, I can get that link to you as well. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. And when you say Circe Academy Year 2, it's not that you have to have done Year 1 to go into Year 2? Oh, thank you for saying that. That's correct. Yeah, I should. I'll say up front that Circe Academy is self-paced. Okay. Um, it is um, non-hierarchical and non-linear education. So, like for example, um, one of the last uh, season, <laughs> I'm not living on a reality television show. Last, <laughs> last um, session or last year, I should say. Um, uh, I offered like curse breaking and divination and all this different stuff. And some people took just one course, like mm -hmm. that's what they were drawn to in that moment. That's what they wanted to focus on. Um, some people took everything mm -hmm. and, and, that, and, and that's, that's how it's sort of meant to be that I, I don't, I'm not going to force you to learn anything. Um, I think it's really important for people to follow what they're interested in. And that's going to be what the power is for them in that moment. Beautiful. Well, Speaking for myself, it's been a pleasure to follow you, and I feel grateful to have been able to absorb some knowledge from you, not just on the podcast now, but also in joining you in ritual. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. I hope to see you soon. Bye. Bye.